So I think just about everybody here has been with us over the past few weeks as we've been on this pilgrimage, this journey to through the book of Hebrews, because it really does unfold as a pilgrimage, as, as a way for Christians, particularly Jewish Christians, to understand what this new way that had been opened up by the work of Jesus Christ, by his death and his resurrection. What did that mean for these people? particularly those steeped in law and tradition. And what does that mean for us who don't necessarily have that same background, but are nevertheless on a journey that is guided by Christ, led by Christ, and has a destination that he has in mind for us. We've been using that metaphor of pilgrimage and the Camino de Santiago was kind of a visual of what that looks like. I've never been there, but I do want to go there at some point. That long 500-mile road across the top of Spain starts in France and terminates at, this, at Santiago, the city of Santiago, where church tradition has the bones of St. James the Apostle are buried. And so a pilgrimage is known by its sacred stops along the way. It is a sacred journey, but there are particular places that have meaning and have opportunity to to connect with God in particular and special ways. But the, the journey does terminate at a particularly holy place, in this case, Santiago. And that is apt for the way that this epistle is moving us. But what's interesting about this particular passage that was read, because we are going through Hebrews, is that we, we get to a place in this journey where Jesus leaves us and goes on ahead we actually can't follow him to, he to the heaven that he has gone into. That, that's kind of interesting and, and amazing and at times a little disconcerting. He said to his disciples before he went to the passion and the cross, you, where I go, you cannot follow. And there is a sense in which right now we cannot follow. Why? Because where has he gone? Look what our text tells us. It says, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, not to, not to appear for us and now to appear for us in God's presence. He has appeared for us, for you and for me, once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has gone into heaven to the place where God himself dwells. And he has done that for our sake and for our benefit. And he has done that through the sacrifice of himself. This is, if you know your, your doctrine of salvation, this is one of the foundational texts for what we say salvation is. When we say that it is the work of Christ on our behalf, that we could do nothing other than accept it, this is one of the foundational texts that people point to. Because if you look at this, this is all Jesus on our behalf. There, there's no disciple in this. There's no place that the disciple could go to. This had to be the Lord himself going to a place that we could not go. But that's not the whole story. 
The last two verses, 27 and 28, say just as people are destined to die and after that to face judgment, so Christ, uh, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will what? He will appear a second time, not to bear sin as he did the first time, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. So though he is at a place that we cannot now go, he will come back for us so that we will eventually be with him. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That deserves a doxology. Thankfully, we, we say that we sing the doxology each and every day that we're here every Sunday. And it's in no small part because of what Christ has done. He will appear a second time. And we will face a judgment, just a little tangential, but not unimportant fact. Sometimes some people think that because of the work of Christ and our acceptance of that, we will not experience judgment. We will, but we will not escape. Uh, we'll experience judgment, but it will not preclude us from being with him forever in the heavenly city. And so we will be thanking him for that. But that just the fact of judgment that awaits us is also a sobering thought. So what do we do with this? How does this, how does this text work in your life? I'll tell you how it works in mine. When I, when I think about this pilgrimage, and until the Lord calls each of us home, we're not yet in the place that we've designed to be in. We haven't arrived in the heavenly city. We've not been at the destination that he has already told us he will come and take us to. He must come for that second time. And we who have said yes to the atonement will go in with him. But until that, we live, as we've seen in previous times together in this, in this series, that we are called to maturity in Christ, to become more like him each day and through each season that he gives us. We are to live like him, to live a, as some people have called and the church fathers called, incarnationally. The Christian life is a life of God's spirit in us. We are incarnated by his spirit. That shows that we belong to him, that we have a newness of life. There's actually a whole tradition in, in the early church uh, of incarnation. It's often mentioned and spoken about by the church fathers. Richard Foster has a good summary of it. Some of you know him as a scholar. Uh, he says this, the incarnational tradition concerns itself with the relationship between spirit and matter. In short, God is manifest to us through material means. It's one of the blessings, I think, of the Anglican tradition, that matter matters, that when we wear stoles, we are communicating some aspect of the heavenly reality that we want to connect with. And it's not just that. It's, it's an altar, and it's colors, and it's a chalice. It's so many things that speak to this incarnational reality. And Foster goes on to say, now the spiritual and the material are not in opposition to one another, but are complementary. We are created so to receive life from God who is spirit and to express that life through our bodies and in the physical world in which we live. The material world is created in part so as to make visible and manifest the realm of the invisible spirit. It is also the realm or the place where we are to develop our spirit under God. One of the main functions of matter is to mediate the presence of an infinite God to our very finite minds. Or as my uh, sophomore theology teacher said, we have peanut brains, gentlemen, peanut brains. Just a way to appreciate how finite we are. 
But when you think of living incarnationally, when you think of what this text calls us to, that we're not yet to the place that Christ has for us. He's already gone ahead, but while we're still here, we're to live in that holy and material intersection. When you think of Christ's spirit in you, what do you think of? When are you most aware of the Lord, of connecting with him? Is it during times of worship? Maybe there's a particular song or hymn that, frankly, almost never fails to move you. It's just had meaning from its earliest time that you can remember. And when you're in a particularly hard place or challenging circumstance, like, Lord, I need to hear that. Some of you might have a set list. I, I need to hear the whole list. That's great. Liturgy is a part of that. One of the blessings of the liturgy that we do through the Book of Common Prayer is as you do that over time, there are actually sections that become as familiar to you as parts of Scripture, as songs that you might sing, as hymns that you've grown up with. And the Lord will call them to mind as places of connection and familiarity and comfort. So sometimes worship is just that place where we understand him incarnationally. It can also be just the plain reading and meditating on Scripture, on the Word of God, of just bringing that Bible, taking that gospel, opening it up, and allowing the Spirit to speak. How often do we find when we do that, it almost doesn't matter where we open it up to. The Lord is saying something to us in the middle of that, a word apt in season, something we needed to hear for that time and that moment. That doesn't negate study, but it does mean that the Spirit is always at work in us through His Word. Remember, when you open up Scripture, it is an encounter with the living God. So sometimes worship, sometimes through Scripture, sometimes we're aware of Christ's Spirit in us just through answers to prayer, particularly prayers that we have prayed for a long time. You may have thought, man, this is a situation. I'm going to pray for it for this next week, and it should be resolved. And then that week turns into three weeks, four weeks, four months, and you're like, wow, that should have been done a long time ago. But finally, you see God work in a way that you'd always been praying. And you think that, wow, you finally arrived, Lord. You, you've been so faithful. Even when I doubted, even when I wanted to give up praying, kind of I've come through that Red Sea experience that I, I am particularly drawn to the Lord and, and connect with him in those kinds of times. But here's a way that we don't usually think of, I think, when we think about ways that we connect with Christ's Spirit in us. Perhaps we overlook it, but our Hebrews text and the gospel text that Cindy read speak to us. And this is, we connect with the Lord when we live sacrificially. When we live a life that says, I, God calls me to give of who I am, of what I have, to those who may be in need to situations where his presence, where what's going on in the heavenlies needs to be brought to bear and what's going on right now around us physically. Jesus gives himself, his whole body, as a sacrifice once for all. Paul says, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. And though the Lord can give a, uh, only he could give that sacrifice, nevertheless, as his followers, we too are called to give, to live sacrificially. To live in response, what is a sacrifice? It is to live in response to God for the benefit of others. It is to say, Lord, I am doing the things I'm doing in this life primarily out of a response to you for the blessing and benefit of others. If we get it the other way around, we will lose motivation. 
Sometimes we're, we're moved by an initial need that somebody has, and so we resp- we're, we're motivated, motivated by the response to them rather than connecting with who God is and what he wants in that situation. But the trouble with that is we can grow tired. If we're not connected first and foremost with the Lord in that, then our ability to be sustaining in our response to people who need us is going to flag, is going to get a little more afraid than we'd like to admit. So to live sacrificially is to give of oneself through possessions, through time, through abilities, through whatever resources. As I said, you see that in Hebrews, you see it in Mark. This is such an amazing and stark episode in in Jesus' ministry. He's watching people give their, their tithes and offerings. That'd be interesting. You know, you're looking out of the corner of your eyes. You go up to put your stuff in the plate and there's Jesus, the rabbi, kind of looking at you like this. And you're like, okay. But the rich don't mind. It says literally they're throwing in all kinds of wealth. They're, they threw in large amounts. And if they were concerned with the rabbi thought, they probably weren't very concerned. Like, look at this. This is a pretty hefty sum. Maybe if he, he can't quite see it, I'll just unfold it a little bit more so he can see just how much is going in the plate. Big goblet going in. But that's not what Jesus notices primarily. He calls his disciples' attention to focus on this poor widow. It was bad enough being a widow because of the economic deprivation that went with that usually. But it, so it's no surprise that many a widow was would become poor, and he calls her a poor widow. But he sees that she puts in two very small copper coins, and he calls his disciples together and says, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And that's all we're ever told about this widow. What she gives And so what we learn about sacrifice from this, it has nothing to do with the amount of what we have, but it has to do everything with what it costs us to give. And that's a really important distinction because sacrifice by definition will mean it's something that we have that we're going to have to forego for the benefit of somebody else. We'll explore that in just a minute, but I, I don't want us to lose sight of, the, of what sacrifice means and what it meant for her. It wasn't the pennies. You know, those that are counting the collection that day, they're like, glad for the goblet or whatever the big treasure was. I don't know what these copper coins are doing here. I will just have to put them somewhere. When was the last time you actually counted up pennies in your drawer, in your desk somewhere? Probably been a long time. But it's what we give. It's what it costs us that honors God. It's what costs us that, that defines sacrifice. So here are just some op- observations for us as pilgrims. We, like Jesus, are called to a life of sacrifice. And it really is a characteristic of the saints. And that makes it difficult. You know, when the word of God is difficult, it's difficult when we are called into places of having to give things that we hadn't necessarily planned to give. That, that we're, means that we're going to have to go without in some way. Also to sacrifice when, when you're called to give or you're moved to give by the Holy Spirit, you realize you're not in control. This is in part what the, King, the, the Old Testament passage is about. The widow in Zarephath, she's, you know, she's making literally her last meal. 
But God sends Elijah to her. And what does Elijah do? He says, make me some bread. I don't know about you, but if I got that, I'm like, it's just me and the boy now. We just, we're, we're she basically tells him it's our last meal, but I'll make it. And the, Elijah, of course, gives her that blessing. To, be, to, to live a life of sacrifice feels like you're not in control. You don't hang on to the things that allow you to, uh, with as, as much hold, um, because you're hoping, open, holding them with open hands and God is leading you. So it can feel like it's out of control, like we, we, we're not having enough that we'd like. But know that the life of sacrifice, it, while it's characteristic of the saints, it's also at the same time showing the power of the gospel. To love others so much that you would go without something for their benefit really says a lot, doesn't it? You know, there's a, a variety of examples in, in antiquity and of the church. Scholars can write, have written about Emperor Julian, known to us as Julian the Apostate, who was writing to one of the pagan priests lamenting that Christians were outdoing them in the demonstration of charity. He says, it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg or the impious Galileans, meaning Christians, support not only their own poor, but our pagan poor as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those in the Hellenic faith, basically the Greco-Roman pantheon, to contribute to public service of this sort in the Hellenic villages to offer their first fruits to the gods and accustom those to love the Hellenic religion to these good works by teaching them that this was our practice of old. So tradition for tradition's sake. But we do it to show Christ, to show the character of Christ, to show that he was one who went to the cross for us. How is it that we would withhold something that somebody needs for their benefit? It's a life of sacrifice. It shows the power of the gospel. In hearing this, I don't want anyone to feel that they're not sacrificing. We all sacrifice in, in particular ways. Um, later on in, in Hebrews, it, uh, Hebrews 13 sa- says that, in fact, we have sacrificed in many different ways when we give to one another. Um, and don't forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I, in fact, I want to encourage you who are sacrificing. I know even in our congregation, there are people that are in a season of life where they're taking care of parents who are aging, who are less able, who have more challenges. And if you've ever been in that situation, it's been a situation that Vicki and I have had with, with my uh, dad in particular, it just has its own course its own cycle, its own unpredictability. You don't know whether they'll get better. You don't know how long that will be. Some of you are alongside of uh, members of your family. They're dealing with illness. Sometimes it's COVID and sometimes it's something else. And you're giving of your time, of phone calls. When you get a phone call from people in your circle or in your family, you know, it's not always when you would like to get that phone call, is it? I mean, it's like, oh, and how do you make time? Even those so-called little things are important sacrifices that put on display the love of Christ for those around you. So aging parents, forbearing with family members, praying for people, enduring things on the job. You know, we have in our congregation healthcare workers or in places they're called healthcare heroes. Cindy can tell you about that. You know, Megan can tell you about that. Alyssa can tell you about that. People that, particularly in the middle, when this pandemic first broke out and there was high risk factor because of a whole host of unknowns and a lot of infectious people. 
That is a life and a season of sacrifice. That's a very Christian and Jesus-like thing to do. So I want to encourage us today with that. To keep on keeping on. Not to think that you're not doing it, but to know that God is so pleased when we offer him those. Doesn't have to be a lot. Five loaves, two fish. Great. That's enough for me to work on, says Christ. There's other things, right? There's things that you're enduring on the job. There may be stuff going on uh, that just is calling to sacrifice. And sacrifice, really, another way to think of it from a Sermon on the Mount is going an extra mile. You know, it's one thing to go one mile with somebody. You're like, okay, I'll take this phone call. Okay, I can give you this resource. I can be here for you. But then they call you and want more. They want another phone call. They want more resources. <sighs> Lord, what do I do? It's a good prayer. Lord, what do I do? He will help you find out and, and know how to glorify him. Remember that sacri- the life of sacrifice is a response to God first and foremost. And as we respond to him, the question is, Lord, how do I then be you to this person? That doesn't mean there isn't a time for a boundary and it isn't time to say, okay, you know, or to get some more help along the way. I'm not, don't, don't hear huge martyrdom here, but do hear that our first question is to Lord, to say, Lord, how do I, how do I glorify you in this? Let me just finish up with a few practical ideas about getting starting or moving onward in this call to maturity that we have. Moving onward on this pilgrimage to say, Lord, you know, this whole idea of sacrificial living, I'd like to know more about it. Frankly, I'm scared to know more about it. I'm not sure what the implications are. I like being in control. So just ask him, Lord, uh, where, where can I spend more time with other people? I, I want to spend, if that's kind of what you think the need is. It won't fit into your schedule, but be open to that. Uh, Lord, how do you want me to give more than I've planned to give? I'm going to have to go without some things that are important. What do you want me to do with that? This week, ask God to show you any place where your sacrifice would be a loving response to somebody that you know or somebody you haven't met yet, just to be really practical about it. To return where we began, Christ modeled for us a sacrificial death for our behalf. He went to heaven for our sake to appear before us and to take care of the one thing that we couldn't take care of, which is the sin in our lives that brought death, that separated us, that was going to separate us from God. He did that out of his love for his father and his love for us. To live a life that Christ lived has an element of that same kind of sacrifice for other people. And so rather than shrink from it or be afraid of it, when it comes, embrace it. When it comes, know that this is Jesus' particular assignment, his special act of love, his way of saying, man, I love you so much. I'm only entrusting this person in this situation with you. Get some friends if you need to, but this is your way to glorify me. And in some small measure to pass on what I have done for you to others who need it so that they too will one day enter the kingdom when I come again. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.